Hi, welcome back to Foreign Office. I'm Michael Weiss, Director of Special Investigations at the Free Russia Foundation, as well as News Director at New Lines Magazine. Uh, my guest this week is Benjamin Tallis. He is at the Center for International Security at the Hertie School. Uh, and I know Benjamin, as I know a lot of guests on the show from Twitter, uh, which is, I guess, how you do these days um, in lieu of meeting people at restaurants, bars, and conferences. Uh, anyway, he's been a very outspoken uh, critic of German government policy with respect to the war in Ukraine. Um, and I kind of wanted to bring him on the show to expand some of his long threads into a searching philosophical and perhaps polemical argument. Benjamin, it's, it's good to meet you face to face as it were uh, through this medium. But um, yeah, look, I, I've been following your, your commentary for quite a while. And as somebody who I, I by no means consider myself an expert in German politics, but because I cover Russian influence operations, Russian intelligence operations, and obviously I've been flat out on the war in Ukraine since the, the start of it. My work has often sort of dovetailed with uh, what's going on in Berlin. Uh, I've covered the Kangashvili assassination and the initial attempts to try and play that down as some kind of internal jihadist dispute or, you know, organized crime, when in fact now it's been proven in a German court of law that no, indeed, the Russian intelligence services orchestrated uh, this Chechen dissident's murder. Uh, give me your perspective here on sort of what the German government is doing, what it's thinking, and why it has taken so long for Berlin to, if indeed it has seen the light, to see the light with respect to what Russia has been up to in Europe for all of these years. Right. Thanks very much indeed. Nice to nice to meet you too, and uh, great to be on the on the show. Um, I think it's interesting actually to kick off with something you said that Germany tends to feature in a lot of discussions, partly yeah. by terms of its uh, its economic power, its population size, but also its reputation around the world, which has in the past been for acting as something of a moral power, and that's partly why I've become so engaged with this issue over the last few weeks and months, because I don't think it's living up to that reputation. And uh, frankly, all of my criticism of Germany is made with the intent of helping Germany fulfill its potential as a force for good in the world, which is latent at the moment. And there's a lot of Germans who share this view. So it's it's critique, but critique with purpose and critique with belief that a better Germany is actually um, possible. And certainly we've seen a big gap between some people's expectations of what Germany could deliver for Ukraine, um, could deliver in terms of its part of the international community response, and what it has actually managed to deliver so far. And clearly the uh, biggest gap is in terms of heavy weapons and the endless promises we hear, which then excuse follows excuse follows excuse. Um, which doesn't look good. And whatever the parlous state of the Bundeswehr, which is a real, real issue, there is more that Germany could and should have been doing. We could also argue the same on sanctions. Uh, it could have gone harder, could have gone further, uh, could have borne a little bit of pain itself, which has not been shy of inflicting on others over the years, economically uh, speaking, but hasn't quite been willing to do. Uh, and it hasn't really gone all in yet, with the exception of some comments by Foreign Minister Baerbock, uh, in supporting Ukraine's EU candidacy. Yeah. So there's a number of fronts on which Germany could and should have done a lot more if it was truly behind Ukraine's effort and truly behind supporting the West against uh, Putin's uh, regime. And it's that expectations versus actuality gap at the moment that some of us are trying to help fill. 
Well, you know, every week I do a thread with Holger Renema, my Estonian colleague from Delphi, the newspaper there, um, citing this Estonian military analyst we call Carl, who has been kind of shamanistic in his predictions, which have largely borne out about the, the pace of the war. And this week he said something rather interesting, which is he said special attention should be placed on uh, German Chancellor uh, Schultz, who has been sort of kicking the can down the road with respect to sending weaponry to Ukraine. He does not want to do it. The German establishment is still very, very tentative about this war and, and essentially cutting Russia off from European markets and isolating Russia in terms of its, its um, energy uh, exports, which as you know, I mean, this has long been a kind of um, arm of Russian foreign policy, right? Using oil and gas and, and as a way to blackmail and uh, bully uh, Europe. You know, is is are we seeing still kind of the hangover of Cold War Ostpolitik? Is it still you know state capture in terms of the elites in Germany who are very much on the hook with Moscow? Whether I mean they have been recruited as active agents or simply there's just too much money and too much propaganda that's been poured into this society and this electorate for so long that um, you know it, it could take years for for this rupture to happen. I mean, it does seem that the German population is largely in favor of helping Ukraine or certainly has sympathy with Ukraine's plight at the moment. But again, you know, the difference between the people and the state is can be vast. So where do you see things headed in the next, assuming this war drags on, which it seems like it's going to for several months, if not possibly years? Yeah, it's, it's a really important question. I mean, I think you're right to point to the public's attitude as being somewhat different. It's been uh, more in support of delivering heavy weapons than, than has been seen. And also, especially, we have to recognize that Germany has taken in 600,000 Ukrainian refugees. And a lot of that, um, and a lot of the willingness to do that has come from German people. You only have to go to the, the Berlin Hauptbahnhof, the main station around the corner from, from my house, and you'll see people waiting to, to help refugees. You see teams of volunteers. And so on, and that's been a really moving and important thing to see that shows the Ukraine, the German public are behind Ukraine. Yeah, but those just haven't been translated through through the government. And in the last couple of weeks, it's become a an interesting debate. So, a leading conservative politician, opposition politician here, Roderick Kieserwetter, said on on television on Sunday that he doesn't believe that Schultz wants Ukraine to win the war. And this has been a, a very controversial statement, but honestly, it seems to be borne out by the, the facts of what Germany has actually done under the Schultz government. And yeah. so this, it didn't come as a surprise. And it's very hard, of course, to read into the intentions of what Schultz does or doesn't want, uh, unless we know him uh, directly personally. Um, but you can read through the actions there that there's a, there's a reluctance, there's a hesitancy. And indeed, part of that seems to be about a willingness among particularly the Social Democrats, the SPD, to go back to some kind of business as usual as soon as possible. Uh -huh. And there's several reasons for this. I'm going to come to your point about Cold War Ostpolitik uh, when talking about that. Uh, so this Cold War Ostpolitik under Willy Brandt, who pioneered this policy, was a much more um, ideals-driven policy and also a much more... Um, hard interest-based policy in terms of uh, really making change in the East, um, which the what's called Ostpolitik after the Cold War has not really been about at all. It's morphed into something they know here as Vandal durch Handel or change through trade. But the trouble is it's been all Handel and no Vandal, so all, all trade and no change. And 
that's become really problematic when it's dressed up then in this kind of cloak of peaceful intentions, which is how uh, Frank Walter Steinmeier, the president here, who's fallen into a lot of trouble and disrepute uh, lately for his attitude towards Russia and towards Ukraine, he would be a prime exponent of this, who seemed to have good intentions and drawing on Germany's troubled history to try and make peaceful relations with Russia, ignoring the fact that Germany also inflicted terrible crimes on Ukrainians uh, yeah. for the time being, which is a point that's often raised. So you put this together with the uh, peaceful intentions, the legacy of engagement with the East, which becomes morphed into pretty much just basic gain-taking, uh, economic uh, gain-taking. And then perhaps more generously, we could see a misplaced faith in the liberal convergence wager. Uh, the end of history idea that after the end of the Cold War, that liberal economic engagement will indeed bring political change. Now, Germany wasn't alone in putting misplaced faith in that but perhaps it benefited most from it. And even a senior German diplomat, Thomas Bagger, who's been a foreign policy advisor to Steinmeier, uh, famously described this in 2017 or 2018 as Germany being the end of history country and needing to change its approach. Yet it didn't do that in terms of its dealings with the Putin regime. You know, it's funny, uh, Uli Speck on Twitter also had a very, I thought, incisive comment, which is, look, you know, this was Europe's chance. I mean, everything that Macron has been banging on about uh, security, sovereignty and, and Europe kind of rising out from under, I guess, the, the perception, at least, of, of the end of Pax Americana. Ukraine was the moment. And yet you have two countries in Western Europe, France and Germany, which have been, I mean, in France's case, I would, just, I would classify it as a slightly manic depressive you know, France is sending heavy weapons to Ukraine. I just saw video evidence of the Caesar self-propelled artillery system in the field, which is quite good. Um, but then Macron cannot help himself from ringing up Putin and, and sort of trying to cut some kind of diplomatic deal. So the two central countries in Western Europe, the lead countries, have largely failed to take the initiative to really be the kind of moral leaders that uh, perhaps, I mean, they saw themselves as under different circumstances. And yet you see, I mean, in Eastern Europe and particularly the Baltic states, just as a matter of GDP expenditures to help the Ukrainian people at all levels, humanitarian assistance, security assistance, et cetera. I mean, Estonia spent something like 0.8% of GDP just on Ukraine. Um, and they've been much more forward footed in terms of, uh, you know, just paying attention, frankly, to the course of the war and not being doom casting in their scenarios that Russia was going to have a complete rout in 72 hours, Kiev would fall, etc. This seems like a test, or it seems like a failed opportunity. It was an opportunity for Europe to really do what Europe has been saying for now many years, um, certainly even before the Obama-Trump era uh, under George H.W. Bush, it wanted to do. And yet, okay, you know, the, 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 there's a sort of diminishing returns here. Um, and from my American perspective, chauvinistic and hegemonic though it may be, it does really show that without the United States and the UK as well, which I would prefer was still in the European Union, but that's another matter, without the transatlantic kind of, um, you know, kind of duality, um, Europe is still going to be riding sidecar. I mean, is, you know, is that a fair analysis or am I being, again, too, um, too American in my appraisal? No, not at all. I think it's it's a very reasonable answer shared by many people within Europe. Sure. No, I mean, I think it's the question is how how it's done. And obviously, France has been and particularly Emmanuel Macron has been banging the drum for what they call strategic autonomy or now strategic sovereignty, which has been slightly walked back. 
um, which is a it's a myth and a dangerous myth at that you can't have autonomy in international affairs every interaction every action is an interaction and so the, the idea of autonomy is extremely problematic what the German interpretation of that was a bit more um, realistic of saying increased ability to act. Now, that would be great. And that's what actually the Americans have been asking for, for Europeans to do for an awful long time. So some negative readings of this say, well, the Europeans are damned if they do and they're damned if they don't, uh, because as soon as they try trying to do it, they're accused of um, decoupling, as Madeleine Albright called it except it's about which form and which institution to do it through. And if this were a serious commitment to the European pillar of NATO and to the Europeans taking responsibility for providing their own security, which, heaven help us, Donald Trump was actually right about the need to do more of that in his famous discussion with Stoltenberg about why is it that uh, America is providing so much for rich countries uh, there is, is a fair criticism. It's a shame it took him to make it, but actually it did energize a few minds here in Europe. Um, and the forum to do that through is NATO. The problem is that strategic autonomy has been a fairly transparent agenda to increase French power and grandeur through the European Union. Right. And this is what we also see, I think, with the phone calls to, to Putin. It's a matter of question to what extent the content of those has been pre-approved with Zelensky and with the Ukrainians. And it's not a bad thing to keep diplomatic channels open. Um, I, I wouldn't uh, say that it was. At the same time, it does rather fit the pattern of trying to put France at the top table and trying to um, make the Grand Nation a great power uh, with little regard for the feelings of others. And that's been the problem with strategic autonomy also all along is that it has almost zero traction in Central Eastern Europe because the Central Eastern European countries that you mentioned before don't trust France to provide their security or not sell them out to another great power should the great game be more appealing. What you're totally right also to point to, I think, is the, uh, the astonishing reaction in Central and Eastern Europe um, to this. In the Baltic states, as you say, Estonia, prime example, uh, the other Baltic states too. But let's also look at the Czech Republic and Slovakia. Mm. Czech Republic first to send uh, tanks to Ukraine. Uh, Petr Fiala, along with um, Morawiecki, the Polish prime minister, uh, in the first group to visit, uh, visit Kiev. And Jan Lipavsky, the Czech foreign minister, for example, one of the most strong, outspoken, moral critics of the Putin regime. And that's why, why I've called these developments in the region a, a new idealism. And that's not a kind of wishy-washy utopian idealism, but it's a commitment to values conceived as ideals worth striving for that you then defend and you go out there and you really push for them with, with material means. Well, you know, it, it's funny, I'm old enough to remember when um, uh, the late Donald Rumsfeld coined this term New Europe versus Old Europe, and was, I mean, just contemptuously derided for this, as he was with most of his coinages and most of what he got up to in his tenure as Secretary of Defense. But he was on to something, which is, I mean, you know, the way I would phrase it, and, you know, I travel a lot through the continent, as, as, as do you, but the, the farther east you go, the more metaphysically west you wind up, at least until you get to the border with Russia. Yeah. I mean, going to Kiev feels like you're in the center of the democratic world right now. Um, it feels very 20th century in its in its values in a good way. Um, and I just I, I continue to fail to see that reflected elsewhere. And, and perhaps it's just kind of, you know, as you say, everybody's got their own sort of agendas and, and sort of chauvinistic uh, ways of, of trying to do business. But I mean, look, it, it, it does seem like we have reached a breaking point uh, in the, forget, let, let's not say the world, because we, you know, we have to take into account Asia, the global south, et cetera, but the West's engagement with Russia. 
I mean, I, maybe I'm being naive in saying this, but I don't see a, re a reversion to the status quo ante. I can see certainly strong elements lobbying for, well, okay, you know, we have to keep some sanctions, but we, we also need to engage. And, you know, this kind of creeping uh, rapprochement, Henry Kissinger coming out yesterday and saying Ukraine must cede territory to Russia, when in fact 90%, I think, or certainly upwards of 80 some odd percent of Ukrainians do not want to cede one inch of their land to Russia. Do you see that this is sort of what we're dealing with now, everything you've been saying, kind of like the last gasps of the old order and the new order is being ushered in? And look, whatever, you know, uh, Herr Schultz and, and Monsieur Macron would like to see happen is not going to happen. I mean, there is a, a, a fair chance um, that Ukraine will quote unquote, win the war, or certainly degrade Russia to a point where Russia can no longer commit the kind of resources into this war that it had done before. I mean, the New York Times has a big splash uh, today on the kind of uh, the Putin shrinking war, right? I mean, it's gone from regime change, taking all of Kyiv, um, going uh, uh, west of the Dnieper River to now, essentially the, the front is, has kind of squeezed into this sort of pimple zone of, you know, Lugansk. So, uh, I mean, your grand design the next five, 10 years um, is Europe going to get its, its act together? Is it going to realize that it cannot engage Russia, at least under this regime and this dictatorial leadership? Yeah, this, I mean, this is the battle that's on right now for whether yeah. that's going to take place or not. And it's interesting you mentioned uh, you know, further east in the EU and even in, and into Ukraine, you get the further western your values become. Yes and no, uh, because there's no denying, I think, that uh, while, for example, Poland has been at the forefront of the response to to Russia's assault on Ukraine, it's no one's ideal of a liberal government right. at the same time. And there's an awful lot of repression of um, various kinds, which the EU and Western EU states remain rightly concerned about. They're a little bit blind to their own failings in some of those regards too. I mean, we only need to look at what's happened with governments in the Netherlands, in, uh, in Austria in recent times to look at these. A lot of problems are not limited to the East, but nonetheless, let's say Poland in particular has to deal with, uh, with a lot of these issues and decide effectively which side it's on um, about a lot of the, the liberal values that would still underpin any new order building. And I think you're, you're really right to point to the fact that we're reaching the end of the interregnum where the yeah. old order is dead, but the new could not yet be born. We are now seeing the birth of a new new order, but the battle for how to shape it and on which basis it's built and where it applies is really very much the case. Uh, it's the same thing that when I mean, Ukrainians haven't become saints overnight, they've inspired us, sure. all, many of us with what they've done, but Ukrainians themselves would be the first to say there's a lot of problems that need to be dealt with in their country after the war finishes. It's how those, those are dealt with and how that's then plugged into a wider ordering process that on one side looks like it's reignited this values-based agenda, while also recognizing some of the shortcomings of the so-called liberal international order that went before, which was rightly, I think, by many people considered to be pretty rigged, pretty unfair, um, a, a way of keeping the powerful powerful and serving some interests more than others, while actually losing its, its moral core and becoming beholden through its institutions to, say, for example, through the, through the United Nations, to the wishes of authoritarian states. So addressing all of those different types of issues, the, the question of inclusion in institutions versus cohesiveness of values, of how we actually distribute opportunities and possibilities, that's the fight that's really on. And there is going to be a lot of effort to walk things back, as you said. And in Germany, I'm particularly concerned about that. Why? Because I think 
um, it's very difficult to unscramble a lot of the geoeconomic eggs that have mm. contributed to Germany's current situation. So you have the heads of large corporations here waving the, uh, the, the bloody rag of mass unemployment using the particular term uh, Massenarbeitslosigkeit, which in, is a term normally associated with the 1930s, 1920s, 30s, and Germany's history. They're using this to scare people from trying to do too much or too far too soon. So, All right, fire engine going by. <laughs> Means is, is being set alight, apparently. So continue, <laughs> sorry. Okay. No, but this, this is it. And the question is, to, to what extent do we get scared? To what extent can we actually uphold our values? And to what extent do Europeans in particular want that? Because the, the question of regional ordering in Europe is, is crucial to this. And I've, I've written a lot on how the EU has really lost its way and lost its mojo and lost yeah. its transformative power that it used to have. There's a question whether this actually could reignite that. And that centers around the question of whether to include Ukraine, also how to view the world. Can you see a possibility of transformation in the world? Or do you retreat behind closed doors in the kind of strategic autonomy way and the protect what I call protective security way? So that's really the game that's on. And it ties and to in that, to that point. I mean, to that point, you know, I thought it was quite symbolically powerful anyway that the EU delegation arrived in Kyiv well before um, a lot of now Western statesmen are, uh, statesmen are paying homage by going to Kyiv, whether it's Defense Secretary, Secretary of State, um, and indeed prime ministers and presidents. But um, there, there's a kind of transformative effect that happens when you go there uh, and you meet with Zelensky. Uh, Ursula van der Leyen, the president of the European Commission, who worked very closely with Angela Merkel in Germany, comes from you know, the Christian Democrat government tradition. And I mean, let's be honest, her party was largely responsible for creating this old world world order. She certainly is talking the talk. I mean, I've seen her interviewed here in the US, um, a great deal of moral solidarity with Ukraine, very, very pro Ukraine in her rhetoric, um, sort of, you know, has to be careful in some of the things she says, was asked recently um, by uh, NBC, why can't Ukraine be fast-tracked for EU membership? And, you know, she's invoking the, the, the channels and protocols that we all have to go through. But she said, look, you know, Slovakia, it only took, you know, a matter of a few years, unlike other countries that have had candidate status where it's taken decades. So she seems to be su suggesting, egging on that, you know, what Macron has said is not necessarily true if Ukraine does get its act in order in terms of anti-corruption mechanisms, political reform, et cetera, et cetera. It could well be part of the European Union. And look, that would also have, I think, a transformative effect upon the EU itself, right? I mean, you're going to have this kind of rock star nation as a member um, where what it says cannot be breezily dismissed because it is right now living or reliving World War II. Um, so it, 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 it creates a great deal of, of kind of uh, moral imperative uh, in, in what it, it, it says and what it advocates for. Um, let me ask you this, uh, just to move the conversation farther east. We have begun to envisage a Russia without Putin um, in the West, whether it's President Joe Biden saying, not calling for regime change per se, but saying this guy cannot stay in power, meaning the world will not be safe. International security will not be safe. Russia itself will be a deeply insecure place with Putin at the helm. There's all kinds of rumors, allegations that Putin is ill, maybe dying. I mean, I've, I've reported on these rumors, which have now reached the top levels of the Russian elite and the security services. 
you had uh, uh, Richard Dearlove, the former head of MI6, coming out and saying he thinks Putin will wind up in some sanatorium by 2023. And uh, uh, the head of Ukraine's military intelligence services repeatedly talking about him being ill and all this stuff. What happens after Putin, to your mind? Um, clearly, the, the, the next in line, assuming Putin were just to be removed from the equation individually, would be Nikolai Patrushev, who is nobody's idea of a reformist or a liberal, um, although may well take a more pragmatic approach and realize that this war has been a catastrophe for Russia. Um, one of the concerns I have is if Putin is gone, then all of a sudden the, the sort of international bugbear or the international demon really is removed and that adds only more incentive for the kind of recrudescent logic of we need to re reconcile with Russia, lift all the sanctions, you know, revivified trade, basically allowing the same mistakes to replicate themselves. It seems like there's an opportunity here in the long term anyway. I mean, because he will die eventually or he will be removed from power eventually. What is the West strategy? I mean, in, in the 90s, obviously, you know, it was let's pour into Moscow, make a bunch of money. But we did not, I mean, the former foreign minister, uh, Kozarev, told me the real fundamental failure in that window between 1991 and 1996, maybe 1994, was the United States did not see investing in liberal democracy in Russia as a national security and international security issue. Uh, it, it was sort of high on this sort of metaphysical mushiness of the end of history and the, this is the inevitable course that things are going to take and it could not see you know what was lurking in the shadows which was revanchist ultranationalists and kind of unreconstructed commies who basically wanted to restore the old grandeur and the old empire will we make the same mistakes again uh, given the course that history has taken in the last 20 odd years yeah great it's a great question again i think this what I hope the lesson that is learned from this is that tiptoeing around dictators and pandering to their, their wishes and to those of authoritarian regimes doesn't make us more secure. It provokes them to do more. It creates the space in which they can operate. And also failing to pay attention to our own societies and their, their own uh, cracks, their own weaknesses, which is precisely where authoritarian regimes can then drive wedges into them. Uh, Putin has in the past mainly operated with the failings that exist in our societies and widened them, deepened them, um, worried at them, because there are things that can be, can be used. So fundamentally, first of all, investing in our own society's resilience, but also the cohesiveness and the possibilities that people actually see for a better life in our societies in future, which cause them to invest on their own regard to the future tied to that society and state. Fundamentally re-inspiring the idea of progress in the West has to be actually at the very heart of our uh, security strategy going mm. forward it's to, to do what I, what I call uncancelling the future in a very basic way. It's to the idea of the progressive future being as simple as your children will live better than you. If you don't see that, if you see a shrinking pie, you tend to choose a different kind of strategy. Right. If we can reinvest that notion of progress and sustainable progress, that's one of our biggest kickbacks against authoritarian regimes. The other part of it, of course, is be as tough as hell on them. Uh, don't give them an inch. Don't give them an inch to move. Don't allow them the kind of international get outs uh, that we've been been allowing them to way too much of. And I think the at the end of the day, though, the goal nonetheless has to be a liberal democratic Russia. Um, and trying to work out how you get to that is, of course, a matter of debate. I don't think there should be any 
on-ramps uh, until, and I think it's actually better to talk about on-ramps than off-ramps, uh, to be honest. For giving an on-ramp to Russia, to the world, to get back into international society has to come with all the conditions that mean that Russia is not going to be a threat. Ultimately, that's going to be to the benefit of the Russian people too. They want yeah. their kids to live better than they do. And actually that means a democratic and uh, liberal regime that spreads uh, the benefits of progress to more people. Until that regime is in place, then we should be isolating them. And that means after Putin goes as well. You know, I've been dusting off some of the kind of horrier texts of the Cold War in recent days um, because it, it they seem to be instructive or, or you know, edifying in some respect. And, you know, you mentioned something, um, fighting back against authoritarianism as a way to kind of secure our future, uncancel the future. But one of the tricks here, one of the difficulties, as you know, I mean, you, you mentioned Poland. Poland is a tricky example because obviously they have taken the lead as sort of the, the number one um, receptacle of Ukrainian refugees, a great deal of solidarity, a lot of security assistance. They are, you know, the triage center and the fallback barracks of this war, right? I mean, all Western weapons seem to be going through Shishuf airport and then driven. Um, Turkey is another example, you know, the sort of redheaded stepchild of NATO, um, the frenemy that people would like to renounce but cannot. Right now, a huge sticking point, um, mm -hmm. at least in the rhetoric and the public perception, uh, not so much with Finland's accession to NATO, but Sweden. Um, I've been talking to Turkish diplomats, I've been talking to Swedish diplomats, trying to find some kind of common ground between them. Um, and it, it, it's a problem. And Turkey is no one's idea of a liberal democracy. It's deeply authoritarian. It's run by a guy who is, I mean, bad, mad, and, you know, given to these flights of temper that actually, uh, uh, you know, uh, completely antagonize his own foreign ministry, intelligence services, and so on. And yet we still have to do business with Erdogan, right? Um, I, I mean, I, every time I hear people on Twitter saying, oh, you know, we should kick Turkey out of NATO. Well, if you don't like them in NATO, what do you see what they do when they're out of NATO, you know? Right. And I mean, look, you're seeing now rapprochement occurring between Washington and Riyadh, um, which is actually galvanizing, I think, Erdogan and giving him a sense of, of boldness and what he can demand for, you know, NATO expansion. Um, I think, and, and, and rightly so, the Biden administration reckons that, look, if Russia is going to be a massive geopolitical and strategic threat, which it already has demonstrated it, it is at the moment, we are going to have to lay down with some nasty comers, as the, as the United States has long done. Um, and, you know, going back to what my earlier comment about some of these older texts from the Cold War, I mean, this was the Gene Kirkpatrick thesis, dictatorship and double standards, right? You have a totalitarian menace. It will mean that you will have to align with authoritarian regimes, guilty of gross human rights violations, by no means, you know, the erosion of civil society, et cetera, et cetera, in order to come up with a coherent international strategy. And I, I, I again, we're, we don't necessarily have to replay the tape of the 20th century. How do we do this in a way that reckons with, you know, a greater sense of whatever you want to call it, uh, you know, the Overton window of, of moral values and human rights and so on and so forth. But that, that is very realistic, right? Um, where we don't just kick people out of our coalition because, you know, they fail to meet our benchmarks for freedom, democracy, et cetera. 
Yeah, and this to, to go back to Donald Rumsfeld. I mean, we yeah we go into the world with the NATO we have rather yeah. than the NATO we wish we had. Right. Um, sure. I it, it's a really interesting question at the moment, but I think we can afford to be bolder uh, than we were in the past, and I think that's actually key to it. But also being um, being bolder in core, and then being new, more nuanced in institutional arrangements. And this is something that uh, a lot of scholars and, and experts have pointed to in the last years, is this tension between cohesion in institutions, so all sharing the same values and approaches, yeah. versus inclusion and broadening. And I think we have to recognize that different institutions serve different purposes. And so there'll be very inclusive institutions, such as the United Nations, There'll be then uh, in institutions that we see as having particular purpose, so such as NATO, and others that have a particular regional role, such as the European Union. And all of those, I think we need to be a bit cleverer in how we apply criteria. But when we do apply criteria, we should really apply them and we should make sure that there's no, no slipping out. Uh, so, I mean, the case with Hungary in the EU is particularly pertinent, I think, because that does seem more and more to be a lost cause. Um, yeah even ignoring the double standards where rules that were created by France and Germany don't apply to France and Germany, you, you can't really wiggle out of the analysis that actually Hungary is a significant problem and that four times Orban has got a super majority. The Hungarian people clearly support this. So it's not a case of a, a really divided country. And it's, it's a sore on the EU's values base. Um, right. It's been coddled by German politicians. And it doesn't even advance the geopolitical or geostrategic objective, which is isolate Russia, right? Unlike Poland, where at least on that score, they're pretty much on side. And, you know, Turkey is kind of walks this weird knife edge. But, you know, the Ukrainians will tell you Turkish security assistance is actually much greater than has been publicly acknowledged. And Erdogan privately anyway, is very supportive of Zelensky. Um, And, you know, I mean, so... yeah. Pro convention as well. What Turkey's done with that, with closing the the states yeah, well, exactly. vessels. I mean, this is clearly very, very useful. So I think we can we can look at certain institutions where there is the possibility to really be more ideologically bold, and the EU would be prime among those. And actually, getting its own house in order in that regard is is key. Then looking at NATO, um, I think indeed we have the NATO we have rather than we wish we had, but we should be working towards the wish the one we wish we had. And right. so actually being a bit tougher in terms of our conditionality. Yeah, we get a lot from Turkey being in NATO, but so does Turkey. Sure. And so well, how do we actually leverage that um, in, a, in a meaningful way? Doing deals with Saudi Arabia and others, including the governments that Germany has been fishing around trying to find alternative energy supplies, um, I'm less convinced that's the way forward. As an interim stopgap measure, perhaps. As anything more than that, no. And that's precisely the kind of thing that we should be looking to stop uh, stop doing. And so this, this question about cohesion also actually comes within our own societies and looking mm-hmm. at how we uphold the values that we claim to espouse. And this, again, is not actually some sort of wishy-washy utopianism. It's saying our values are our interests. Right. If we actually really uphold those, it makes the world safer for us, for those around us, and gives that possibility of positive futures, which should also reignite the notion of soft power in the West, which has been fading um, under competition. And we need to actually say, no, we do have a better model if we live up to it. How do we go about re-engineering that in a way that, for example, meant that Ukraine wants to join the EU? And what you said before, I think, about EU enlargement and what von der Leyen was doing, absolutely key. I mean, in one speech, she overturned 20 years of EU policy on Ukraine. They're one of us. They belong with us. That was the strongest single statement that's been made in that regard. And what we're now seeing is the battle on within European countries as to whether we can live up to that or not. 
it's very clear Macron doesn't want Ukraine in the EU. Right. It's very clear that there's big hesitancy in the part of the SPD in the German government, although even within the Social Democrats, people like Mikhail Roth are talking about it in much more favorable terms. Baerbock from the Greens, the foreign minister is in support. But all sorts of alternatives are being walked around, suggested, second tier memberships, the European political community that Macron's talked about. That's not good enough. And what von der Leyen was doing was good enough, but she's now meeting real headwinds and real resistance mm. in that. And I mean, you, you rightly pointed to the fact that Ukraine will have to go through the procedure. There is not a fast track, but you can go through that quite fast, um, as, as certain Central East European countries did. And Ukraine actually has a step up in that, too, because it's already implemented a lot of the EU body of law, the, the acquis communautaire because of the relation it's had, the close relation through some of the trade agreements and so on that it's had in the past. So it needs Well, and also added to which, I mean, this is the first time you have a real Ukrainian consensus about something. I mean, again, you know, 80 plus percent, no, no uh, relinquishment of, of territories. I think the number is even higher in terms of their optimism for winning the war. And given that this for them is very existential, um, saying that, okay, we have to do the following, we have emergency measures in place to do the following so that we can join the European Union, I think that's crucial. And I, I don't think, I, I actually see for the first time, a lot of the malaise and torpor and all the problems that Ukraine has had implementing these um, um, reform measures, that's fallen by the wayside now. Um, so now would be the time for them to do it. Because now, now this is how you create a, vir a virtuous cycle rather than the yeah. vicious cycle of mistrust that's been there for the last 15 years yeah. because Ukraine didn't feel wanted. And there was this very half-hearted embrace, which was as much to keep Ukraine at arm's length as to bring it closer. And Ukrainians knew that. <laughs> when I was working for the EU there, it was very clear. There was a lot of self-serving interest on the EU's part, and it wasn't really about bringing Ukraine in. And if you get that kind of feeling of rejection and the idea that the light is not really there at the end of the tunnel, you don't try as hard on the reforms. That changes overnight if you say you've got a real prospect and we're willing to support you to do it. We'll push you to do those reforms and you're going to have to do them. And Ukrainians more than anyone want those reforms because they yep. want the better governance that come with, of course. with it. Yeah. Well, let me, uh, we can end on a note um, where I'm more or less flying blind here, but I'm, I'm keen to, to get your insights. And that is um, China and China's role in as, as a kind of not so passive observer of what's taking place, uh, clearly state media propaganda has tended to side with, with Russia's perspective, although there have been some interesting outlier examples. Um, where do you see this affecting, because you remember, Biden came to office, much like Obama, there was going to be this pivot to Asia. Russia was seen as a problem, a nuisance, something that will have to be dealt with and deterred, but by no means going to um, preoccupy American foreign policy the way that it used to. And then, you know, history intervened and Russia does what Russia always does, which is <laughs> reasserts itself in a way and puts itself center stage. But still, China is seen as the 25-year strategic doctrine threat to the United States, um, not just in military power, but commercial power, et cetera, et cetera. You know, now there's talk of, given that Biden has three times said, the United States will provide security assistance to Taiwan, not intervene, which is another, I get very touchy when people start conflating these terms, but basically militarily support Taiwan in the event that China would try to invade or take it over. Um, where do you see Beijing in all of this? Uh, are they kind of leerily watching as Russia 
slowly loses and and grinds down and becomes a kind of economic North Korea. Well, actually, no, it's not becoming an economic North Korea. Unfortunately, it's still doing fairly okay. But you know what I mean? The, the isolation, the military defeat, the humiliation doesn't seem like this is something China would want for itself, uh, nor is it, frankly, t- from what I can gather, talking to China experts, um, a, a likely scenario. It's not they, they don't go kinetic in this way. Um, they like yeah. influence peddling. They like transactional power, that kind of thing. But and I mean, this is certainly not not a shining example of how to do no. things that, that you'd look to and say, I want some of that too. Uh, no, and it's on the. So I'm I'm not a China expert, um, but let me say a couple of things that relate to my my expertise, which I think are are relevant. The first one is you mentioned influence peddling, and um, that's again where making the resilience of our own societies and the future of our societies works, giving that future and that sense of being bound in and of, of buy-in to, to our way of doing things is, is essential in combating that. You can see it also in Central Eastern Europe. So China had a um, policy there for several years, the 16 plus one, then 17 plus one, and that was various different Central East European countries and the plus one being China. And this went through uh, a series of high points or so on, but has really faded as the failings of China's own model become more and more apparent. The corruption, the failed investments, the um, now withdrawn investments from various Central European countries, which at the time, so for example, the Czech Republic ran a coach and horses through its previous um, human rights centered uh, foreign policy identity. Now we can see the human rights policy is right front row and center again. China's not going to get a look in. The Czechs are talking um, about recognizing Taiwan in the same kind of way that the Lithuanians have done, bearing the economic brunt, um, standing up to the bully, as Jan Lipavsky in the, the Czech foreign minister called it, um, and standing up for democracies. So that's, that's certainly one part of it. Another part is that European countries, we talked about strategic autonomy and European ability to act. Where do those countries make the biggest difference? And I'm talking about the UK here as well. The idea of global Britain and having a strong Indo-Pacific presence, does that complement or does it detract from the European security role that actually the free world, quote unquote, would need to play? So there's some parts of UK opinion that say we can do both. I would be more of the opinion that actually the UK should focus a little bit more on Europe in order to free up the US to do what it does better in the Indo-Pacific. Although, no, also, Australia has a role in the Indo-Pacific. And certainly does. Certainly they're does. not in NATO, but they are in Five Eyes, and they're as close of an ally to the United States and the UK as it gets. So That's dead right. And I mean, we should be looking at ways to hit to not create an Asian NATO, but something akin to which the US could be a pivot point between then the European and the Asian wings of those uh, those alliances. So mm-hmm. I think there's there's work to be done there on working out where we make our best contributions. Could I could I say one thing on Please. this journey before yeah. we uh, before we wrap up? So you mentioned earlier about why did it take Germany so long to see the light if they have seen the light? Now that light is often expressed in the term here, Zeitenwender, the turning point or the change of times. Um, it's important to emphasize that the the Zeitenwender isn't dead yet because it hasn't really happened. Um, it's not a we shouldn't see it as an event but much more as a process that's only really going to become real when it takes hold in the minds and the spirit, if you like, of German politicians, but also German people. There's definitely a willingness to embrace that among people, whether it's there so much yet in politicians, I, I don't see it fully. I see it in some politicians, particularly in the more visionary elements of the, the Green Party. Uh, but what it's been reduced to is so far the Schultz speech on the 27th of February, 
um, the 100 billion in extra defense spending, which is slowly being walked back, is that on top of the 2% or now part of the 2% and 2% very much being seen as a, as a ceiling rather than a floor now, which is really worrying actually. But also even that, it's only gonna plug a few basic holes in the Bundeswehr's already pretty um, patchy capability. Mm. Titan Vendor really needs is a fundamental reimagining of Germany's role in the world and how you put together values, interests, institutions, partnerships, and capabilities in a cohesive vision. Now, Germany's going through a process of creating a new national security strategy. Uh, roughly, some, some ideas at the moment being thrown around about shape and protect as a key focus for this towards what Baerbock called the security of the freedom of our lives. None of this is set. There's a lot of room for allies to have influence, and I think they should be trying to have as much influence as they can to get their concerns over very clearly to Germany about what has been done in the past, but also really what they want Germany to do in the future. Uh, and that scope is on there for Germany to play a much stronger role and should be encouraged to, to do so, I think, if the Titan vendor is to become a reality. Two more points, and then I'll let you yeah. go because they just occurred yeah. to me. One, you know, it's been very demoralizing seeing polling in the United States for support for Ukraine because um, what you find is the older generations, uh, the 50 plus, mm. tend to be very supportive because, you know, look, they grew up with, they still have it kind of emblazoned in their, their consciousness, the Cold War, the menace of the Soviet empire, revanchist Russia, et cetera. Um, the younger generation, um, 25 and below, don't get it, don't care, or frankly, I don't know, they're watching too many TikTok videos manufactured by cranks and, you know, Russian stooges to think that, you know, Ukraine isn't worth defending and blah, 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 blah. Um, it seems to be, though, in Europe, the younger generation, perhaps because, you know, they were dandled on dad or granddad's knee, has more of an awareness of it and has more of an intrinsic um, sympathy with uh, Ukraine, because Europe bore the brunt of the atrocities of the 20th century in a way the United States never did. So there seems to be a generational disconnect between, well, the US and let's just say Europe as a kind of grab bag term. The second point I wanted to make, though, you know, correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, you're, you're there, you, you live in Berlin. There is still very much the weight of German guilt for Nazism, uh, all of the horrors of the 20th century, or 50% of the horrors of the 20th century, let's say. Um, and, you know, one of the lines I've been hearing is, oh, for all the lecturing Germany has done about the, you know, uh, recrudescence of national socialism or Nazism in the US, in Europe, wherever, uh, look at what Russia is doing. It, I mean, the, the, the historical analog here is to what the Third Reich did, right? Blood and soil nationalism, genocide, etc. You now have a case where the BND, German intelligence, has put forward this 70-page document detailing all of the neo-Nazis that are serving not in the Ukrainian military or the Azov battalion, but that are serving in the Russian military or its you know, paramilitary structures. Does this not bear on Germany's sense of collective guilt never again, you know, um, self-criticism sort of directed outward as a matter of foreign policy and, you know, as you said, uh, interests equal values and vice versa. I know those are two very distinct questions, but, you know, take them as you see fit. Yeah, they're really good and they're linked questions. I mean, as Joschka Fischer said in the debate in the Bundestag way back in the 90s when discussing Germany's role in, in NATO and the out-of-area NATO ops, never again should mean never again anywhere. 
And that it's interesting to see um, how that plays out against the peace movement uh, in Germany, which really embedded in a way that it didn't in other countries and came to embody a different identity or part of a different identity after, after 45 and the need to rebuild Germany. Um, and rebuild it morally as well as materially, mm. uh, which, which came and was done, it must be said, extremely successfully. And that's also where a lot of my hope for a, um, a better German contribution in future comes from, the fact that there is a tradition of doing that here. Unfortunately, some of that, and we saw it best expressed in this now infamous open letter to the magazine Emma here, yes, uh, which caused a, a huge stir, and rightly so, um, where basically pacifism becomes an excuse for cynicism and that actually there's a total loss of faith in um, any of the kind of values that I've been talking about now. And they're all seen as a cover for imperialism or for the kind of things also we hear out of some of the US left, it must, must be said too, or from the, the Quincy Institute at times or places like that. Um, but that's been really pushed back against very strongly by a huge portion of society here who do recognize exactly the analogy that you said that never again must also mean never again in Ukraine now, where there is, as you rightly put, a real historical analog to what's been going on and the, the use of rape as a weapon of war, the notion that this war is in fact a Vernichtungskrieg or a war of extermination or annihilation, um, which a lot of Ukrainians certainly certainly feel it is. Um, has bitten here. And there's a huge amount of public feeling saying we have to do something for exactly that reason. This is our historical responsibility, not only because we committed huge crimes in Ukraine, as well as in other parts of the Soviet Union, but also because we know that this is the kind of thing we did in the past. Yeah. And so I think there is there is a recognition of that. On the generational question, this is so interesting, because I think it's, um, it, it's an empirical question that needs an empirical answer. But at the same time, we don't have that information to hand yet my my feeling on it is that there's actually something to do with the kind of stolen promise of the 1990s here which is the so my generation i mean i'm i'm 42 now i was 9 years old when the berlin wall came down and at that moment you had the feeling of things can only get better hmm. In a way, there's the sort of naive end of history version of that where it will automatically get better. But also there was in Central Eastern Europe, for example, with the crowd around Václav Havel, the idea you have to fight for this and you have to yeah. go out there and really defend this because we've just overcome a, a authoritarian regime. Now let's go out and claim our future. Now that future seemed to have been stolen a little bit. After 2007, global financial crisis, the sort of meandering ways of the EU, things didn't seem to be getting better, impending env environmental doom and so on, and then the rise of authoritarian powers. So it's really interesting to see Jan Lipavsky, 35, Kaya Kalas, 45, um, Eduard Heger in Slovakia, 46. They're not far away from that sort of zenial middle generation who would have come of age around the time of the fall of the Berlin Wall and experience what the hope of the 90s could be. And I think in Germany, there was an element of that as well, but it's that generation, it's not the older generation. So there's a reclaiming of that lost hope from that time. And perhaps. you know, what's interesting about that, um, that generational kind of precy or analysis is that, you know, if you look at, for instance, in the United States, what was known as the Vietnam syndrome, right? right. Which was a big kind of, you know, psychic pathology about the use of American power abroad. I mean, rightly so, given the way that war went and, and the fact that it was waged in the first place. But then you have about a 20 some odd year period and all of a sudden wars of intervention become acceptable again. You have the right to protect, you have intervention, NATO intervention in the Balkans to stop a genocide on European soil. 
the pendulum swings too far, you start to get things like the Iraq war, Libya intervention, although it's debatable whether that was wrongheaded or not. Um, and now it seems like, you know, again, the younger generation that grew up in the shadow of 9-11 and the global war on terror only knows Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, the Syrian civil war, which they don't understand or, you know, they understand the wrong way, um, failure, abject failure, humiliation, um, and, and perhaps good humiliation for a, a, an overweening arrogant empire. Ukraine now seems to be resetting the clock, at least, you know, for, for some of us. Um, and I, I, I mean, it is certainly the case. I've been having these conversations with everybody uh, in foreign policy and national security circles here. Look, the reason that the United States is supporting Ukraine, hammer and tong, the reason they're getting M777 howitzers, they might get HIMARS, they're getting loitering munitions, the things that they've been asking for that we didn't want to provide, is not because they're the victim. It's because they're the underdog that actually licked the top dog, right? Nothing succeeds like success. And Americans mm -hmm. finally are crawling out from this sort of, you know, kind of hovel of self-hatred and recrimination, which is why also, and, and I suppose this is encouraging and, and can kind of countermand the earlier point I made about the, you know, the, the younger folks kind of not going all in. If you look at the messaging coming from the Republican Party or certain quadrants of the Republican Party, Fox News, Tucker Carlson, it's not really having an impact in the polling data, right? The GOP is largely supportive of Ukraine, uh, and they're, they're being bombarded with the same disinformation propaganda about Nazism and all the rest of it. It doesn't matter. What they like is American weapons are beating an American enemy. You know, I mean, it's, it's just very basic and fundamental. Uh, and I think, you know, in, in just in terms of the, the, the psychic elements of American national security and foreign policy, it's been quite bolstering to see the U.S. not just on the right side, but on the winning side in a struggle like this. Um, and perhaps right, right. that's the yeah. reason that that we're carrying on and we haven't forced the Ukrainians into some kind of conditional surrender or whatever. Well, um, that's it. I mean, it's been so inspiring as as absolutely appalling as what has happened to to Ukrainians has been. Their response to it has been so truly inspiring that it does. It shows not only that freedom doesn't come for free, but that it's really worth fighting for. And that these, right. these, these are not empty, cynical concepts or words that are only used to disguise um, self-interested actions. They, they mean something real. And I think it's that light that's been shone from Ukraine that has so spooked, for example, these German intellectuals or so spooked some of the, the Quincy crowd. And it's indeed given younger generations something different to believe in, that you can actually fight for this and win. It's not a hopeless right. case. It's not just the inevitable triumph of um, authoritarian regimes who, through their nefarious advantages, will, will outdo us while we tie our hands behind our back. No, we've been sticking our in-laws and javelins right in Russian tanks. Right. And, that, and there's no better use for them. Yeah, it's right? not a quagmire for America. It's a quagmire for Russia, right? Absolutely right. I mean, we have to be you know, careful about treating it as a proxy war and right. instrumentalizing Ukraine in that regard. But I think really across, across Europe and indeed from what I see in the US and the UK, uh, it is inspiring for younger generations to actually see indeed what you said, something different, something that they can actually stand behind and believe in, um, and which is a terrific thing more generally that might re-inspire our politics a little bit. It's almost mm. like the good sides of Richard Holbrook's ghost have come back without some of the negative sides. And obviously, 
tipping over into that arrogance is what has unfortunately tripped us up before, as you as you mentioned, things yeah. like Iraq and so on. But there were good sides to humanitarian intervention in the 90s too. And then what we failed to do in Syria, uh, not only the red line and failing to live up to it, but just letting Syrians down in that way. Right. That I think would be harder to do after Ukraine. And it's precisely yes. what the more idealistic politicians like Lipovsky, Kalas, um, and, and some of the others should really be pushing for. And but this, this, is, this is also the kind of fundamental um, thing here is that the United States didn't win this war. The Ukrainians are winning the war, or at least yeah. are defying all expectation. Remember, the US said, this is a, you know, Kiev will fall in 72 hours. I mean, the Russian military might will be brought to bear, you know, a brace for impact. That was the line that, that Joe Biden had. And all of a sudden, the Ukrainians said, well, hang on, you know, we can do this. We just need the resources. The resources could have been provided before the war started. They weren't, largely as a function of what we've just been discussing. Not another failure. Not we, the, the last thing we need is American weaponry being paraded down Red Square, you know, that kind of thing. That would be just too many um, acts of self-abasement, too many, right? Um, but now things have shifted that, you know, and, and I only hope that the US, as you say, I mean, history doesn't necessarily have to repeat exactly as before. I do think, you know, we move in cycles of liberalization, repression, and so on. But we can learn the, mis the mistakes of the past without sort of being categorical about must do, you know, total isolationism or total interventionism. It doesn't work that way. Um, yeah, that's right. I mean, also, yeah. it's, yeah, what, what are the babies and what's the bathwater? What do you right. keep, what do you get rid of? And in, indeed also, I think a new cycle again of, um, of believing in the possibility of fighting for progress yeah. without again, seeing that as totally cynical and tipping over into, into some of the problems we've seen before. That kind of thing coming together with the notion of then and fighting to support democracies around the world, terrific uh, if we can re-engineer that and, mm. uh, and revive and re-inspire it. Yeah. Okay, well, on that... Uh glossy optimistic note um benjamin tallis you thanks for joining us uh you've been listening to foreign office i'm michael weiss and we will see you next week thanks so much michael it's been great to be on anytime